If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all-new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Rest is Entertainment Questions, Questions and Answers edition. And my name is Marina Hart. And my name is Richard Osman. So many good questions this week. I think, Marina, unfortunately, though, you're going to have to start with an apology. Regrettably, I'm beginning with an apology. Uh, Eve Martin writes in, I'm sure I'm one of a tidal wave of people. You're not actually, Eve, but thank you for correcting me anyway, because I needed it with this correction, but please see attach my extensive research on the casting of Dizzy the Cement Mixer. From Bob the Builder. From Bob the Builder. Which we spoke about last week. Right, which we spoke about last week because they are making a Bob the Builder movie which J-Lo is executive producing. And I suggested that Dizzy would be someone who could either be snubbed or fated in one of the male acting categories. I'm sorry. Dizzy the Cement Mixer is female in all versions of Bob the Builder except the Romanian and Slovenian version in which Dizzy is male. And that's a, that's a real deep dive into Romania and Slovenia, isn't it? It is, something? isn't it? It's, it's quite telling. But anyway, so it will be... Either, so I guess that it will be Kate Blanchett edging out uh, whoever plays Dizzy the Cement Mixer in Bob the Builder in two years' time. Ariana Grande. Unless, unless she plays, unless Kate actually gives us her Dizzy the Cement Mixer, unless, in which case I'm sure she'll make the acting categories. Thank you very much, Eve, and my apologies for that error. Shall we move on to some questions, Richard? Yeah. Who are you <laughs> going to misgender this week? That's my question. Um, yeah, let's do some, shall we? <laughs> Honestly, Romanian, Slovenians, and Marina Hyde. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Okay. I'm going to ask one about Welcome to Wrexham. During the excellent Welcome to Wrexham, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McLenny revealed that they have invested £10 into the football club. How much of that do you reckon they've clawed back with a worldwide hit documentary series? That's a good question. I know know Humphrey very well from the world of comedy, and he's the chief executive of Wrexham. It's a good question. Obviously, they didn't know it was going to be a hit documentary series when they first started this is a polite way of saying a lot more well, isn't it richard <laughs> not really i will say so they didn't know that so the money no. they, they put in was 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 genuine and real uh, and talking to humphrey about it as well every ounce of their heart and soul is in that project they absolutely love it they want Rexon to be in the premier league they want to be there they love the community they love what they're doing to the community so i i, I think that Rexon is in very very safe hands with the two of them obviously if you have a big hit documentary you do okay 
Yeah. It's the truth. So, yeah, they're doing all right. But the initial investment was an investment and the heart and soul is genuine, all of that stuff. So I, th- I think it's a, it's a real feel-good story, unless you're any of the other teams in League Two who are, you know, searching around essentially for Brad Pitt to invest or, <laughs> uh, you know, Newport and you want Toby Maguire to invest in you. But, uh, yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's been a rather lovely story. Thank you to Johnny Mac for that question. Thanks, Johnny Mac. OK, here's one on book quotes. Andy Vickerman says, how do you get chosen as a blurb quote as a fellow author? Do you get paid or is it reciprocal with agents or publishers? Do you think some authors don't read the books a bit like I understand the Oscars voters don't always watch all the films? Great question. So blurbs, we call them. And, it, and it, it's an interesting one because right, you know, if you're, if you're a debut author for your first book, the immediate thing is who can we get to blurb? for this Uh, and it's not just for people picking up in you know your local independent bookshop it's also for the industry you you write a book and it doesn't come out for 18 months because the first thing they're doing is trying to get people interested in that book so you send it out to lots of different authors and hopefully some of them come back and 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 blurb it for you so you send out a proof copy essentially yes i get sent huge numbers of them and i always try to do it as for as many as possible but you can't possibly do it for everyone I always read the ones for which I have provided a quote. Yes, well, that's good. That's good to hear. Sometimes I'm sure people don't. Sometimes you even have pre-proofs. So that you know, that's what we did. Yeah. The Thursday Murder Club. We sent it out to like a hundred people, and because I was, you know, I, I used to go to all the crime festivals, and you know, I made a point of meeting up with people. You know, I knew a few people to send it to, and yeah, then some of them come back that yeah, you definitely have to read it. And we, I think, on the on the on the first one, we had Ian Rankin and Marion Keys, and the idea there is. Do you like Ian Rankin? Do you like Marion Keys? Do you like the idea of a crime book, but that has a bit of Marion Keys sort of yeah. art to it? So you tr- you try and sort of show what sort of book it might be. Um, you certainly don't get. Pa- oh, I've never heard of anyone being paid. Have you? No, no, you definitely no. You definitely yeah. don't get paid. And I mean, I've got a f- couple of things to say about this. There are some authors who refuse always and just say, you know, it's, it's just a point of very grand. Say, I just don't give quotes. I've been asked for a quote for one of those authors' books subsequent to being told that before. Another thing that somebody did to me, this is off topic, but it's not completely off topic. I was asked for a quote on someone's book, which I did not have time to read. And also I knew that I wasn't hugely keen on this person. I was hassled endlessly by the publisher. I wrote an email back saying, I'm terribly sorry, I'm not going to have uh, be able to read it. And then I offered some sort of blandishment. I'm not going to give the exact words because you might be able to work out sort of saying, but he, you know, he certainly makes me think. <laughs> Meaning, really, what I think about him is he's wrong about absolutely everything. Anyhow, that book, even though I was saying in the email, I can't give a quote because I haven't read it, that quote ended up on the cover. I think that is very shoddy behaviour and I will certainly not be giving a quote to that publisher again. It is quite shoddy. Sometimes anything you, essentially, the rule is anything you say in public can be used. Almost all publishers will ask you. But occasionally, you know, if we said something on this podcast about a book, they could stick yes, that Yes, absolutely. We, in but, fact, they are going to put something that we've said about the Werner Herzog book on, oh, on, on the book. Nice. Yes, which is, I mean, yeah. honoured. But I had, I thought quite the opposite, you see. So I was using a euphemism, which is now on yeah. the cover of this book, oh which I haven't read. But in general, so if, if I get asked to blurb something and I don't have time to read it, I'll just say I'm I'm blurbed out. Or if I'm, because I'm writing at the moment, so I don't have time. For, for example, last year, uh, the brilliant Mark Billingham has bring out a new series, brought a book called The Last Dance. Uh, and I didn't have time to read it, but I would always do a blurb for Mark because I think he's one of our best crime writers. So I said exactly that. I said, Mark, I can't read it. I said to his publisher, I can give you a quote that says Mark Billingham is the master of British crime writers. 
because he is. But I, I you know, I can't yes. do a quote. And so, you know, I'm always happy to do that. But no, if you don't have time to read it, you can't. There's a brilliant writer called Ebia Mukherjee, and literally yesterday he's he said, "Any chance you could blurb my book?" And I would absolutely love to because I love Ebia. And at the moment, I'm thinking because I'm writing. I don't, I'm not quite sure I've got time to do it. So things like that. But by and large, I, I try to. I don't do so much blurbing anymore. But if you're if you're a new writer, it's hard. I think because you know if, if you don't have those contacts and people don't know you, what I would say is blurbs aren't as important as you think. Booksellers are much more important. The thing I'd be doing if I was a new writer and you know your publishers haven't given you proof copies is just get them to give you bound up copies take them into the 10 independent bookshops closest to you take them into local waterstones you know if you can get a train into your nearest city take them into a big bookshop give them to booksellers and booksellers do read everything and booksellers are more important than other authors in blurbing and booksellers will hand sell your book and if someone in waterstones leads loves your book they will tell people in other waterstones so that's a sort of a simple lo-fi way of getting people interested in your book because the, the, behind all of this is you want to set as many books as you can before the book comes out that's how the industry works we always you'll see every author saying pre-order the book now pre-order the book now and what that is is it gives the booksellers an idea of the industry an idea of, of whether a book has got some traction and the more pre-orders you get the more orders you get and it just you know it, it gives it a bit of momentum so everyone's in the game of getting pre-orders from you and especially debut authors but is it, that's what I would be doing is binding up my own stuff or get, get your publisher to bind up 10 copies take it into booksellers and get booksellers to read it and you know it only takes one bookseller to actually make a book big because a bookseller Gosh. tells another bookseller tells another bookseller, and booksellers are the greatest people in the industry because they hand sell stuff. They're the ones that make hits all the time. It doesn't matter who you've got on the front cover of your book. So I would say that. But yeah, I've never blurbed when I haven't read a book, uh, other than saying someone's brilliant. I I blurb. So I blurbed. We talked in our first show of the year about a brilliant new book by Johnny Sweet called The Kellerby Code, which I did have time to read because I got sent it just before Christmas. So I've just got been sent that, it. so I yeah. can't wait to read it's it. It's really really good, and so I, you know. I'll blurb that, but by and large, it's you know, you you, you can get over blurbed. Yes, is the truth. But no, you don't get paid. God, I wish. <laughs> I have a question for you, Marina, from Sean Freeman. Um, we were talking about columnist engagement numbers and how you can look up how many people have read your column, and so can the editors and what have you. But before the days when you could look that sort of thing up, Sean asks, uh, to what extent this kind of information would have been known or used before the internet, and how did editors work out who was popular, who wasn't popular, what was working in their paper? Oh, my goodness. Well, like much of old newspapers, it was an extremely subjective thing, but it was probably be done on that old-fashioned thing, the post bag, and people whose columns drew a lot of letters, either angry or... That was sort of, you know analog engagement was like that but it it was really that's how non-exact it was as a science and I mean I should think in some ways it's still a lot of subjective judgment because it's still like and, and it does and editors might decide that one person they need to have a broad church and so you might have you know you might be the person who's fated to be the right-wing columnist in the left-wing newspaper or the other way around and 
lots of people might write in and say, I can't stand this person, but they want they feel like they want a broad church, they want that sort of representation. And if there's a change of government, then suddenly that person becomes much more important because maybe they have a kind of hotline in. But one of the things that I think was really interesting was when newspapers and The Guardian went very quickly to it, went to comments. And my old editor, Alan Rusbridger, always used to have this expression. He said, you know, newspapers used to be like the sort of handing down of the stone tablets, gratefully received, supposedly, by the audience. And I think people were in this sort of sense that, you know, everybody loves this. We create this wonderful product for them every day and we hand it down to them and they're very grateful. The minute they opened up comments and it was just people saying, this is utter rubbish. You know, how does it get published? Are you paid to write this? People, some people just couldn't could not handle it. And actually, in some ways, they were sort of technically, I think, being libeled by their own publishers, because if people were writing underneath something sort of libelous, I suppose in the case of The Guardian or whoever is publishing the column, you are technically publishing the column. You are responsible for that output. So you had to have moderators pulling all this stuff out all the time. That was, I mean, I found that sort of thing very funny, really, because (laughs) you suddenly think, you know, you're not the bee's knees and everyone. And I find that's it. But I'm, I can sort of take it and I don't mind. But some people really, really hated it and thought that there was a particular character to, um, I don't know, Times commenters or FT commenters or Guardian commenters or whatever it is. And I'm not sure that was the case. I think often internet and online communities sort of descend in the same way. (laughs) And I don't mean ascend. However, they've done different things now. Like the Times have gone to, um, you have to name yourself. Um, They've stopped anonymous commenting. And I think that they think you can create and curate a better community and the FT has often felt like that as well. But yeah, that was a real explosion of like, what? I'm not loved. <laughs> I'm not adored by everybody. Well, that's the thing that, you know, this feedback thing, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it in future episodes, the idea of being cancelled. The idea of being cancelled is actually just people hearing from people who say, no, I don't agree with you. And for, for people who grew up in a certain generation of media, as you say, you were just exalted. You know, the BBC are not going to send you the letters where the people hate you. They're just going to send you the praise. And suddenly you have to see sort of unfiltered people's reactions to you and people will like disagree with you well, say, in my yeah. line of work I mean I'm so rude about other people I think you have to say you can't dish it out and not take it so I'm always fine for anyone to sort of say whatever um, I'm, the, I'm the opposite by the way right <laughs> <laughs> I, ju- I just constant praise yeah okay is what, is, is what I like I'll bear it in mind Richard yeah thank you so much how many comments would you have under uh, one of your regular columns <sighs> I do, do you know it's it's hard to say it depends how long they leave the... They now try and shut them off over an hour because moderation became just such a huge part. You can't have limitless moderators because... And people say, well, why am I not allowed to comment on this? Often you're not allowed to comment for legal reasons. There's a huge number of things you're not allowed to comment on for legal reasons because people will just end up libeling or committing a sort of contempt of court or something um, beneath the story. But um, they can only leave them open for a bit on almost everything now because otherwise you would have to have hundreds and hundreds of moderators working all day on this and it's just not on, the best use of newspapers. On your stuff, for sure. On my stuff. No, on, on, on all sorts of things. And it's not just, it's just a useless use of resources. Okay, a question on soundtracks from Ben Grogan. As I'm sure you're aware, Sophie Ellis-Bexter's Murder on the Dance Floor and Natasha Bedingfield's Unwritten are both experiencing a significant resurgence in the charts following their appearance in Saltburn and Anyone But You. Given that Murder on the Dance Floor seems to be on track to outperform its original chart run and considering last year's success of Running Up That Hill, which was obviously in Stranger Things, Kate Bush, I'm left with a potentially interesting <laughs> question. Do you think record labels will now actively start trying to finance their back catalogue into movies, hoping to make a lot of money from songs that are metaphorically lying around in the warehouse? Well, that's an 
Easy one, Ben. Thank you. And it is a this not just potentially interesting question. It is um, yes, they do. They always have done. They have done for for many years. And there's you know a, a job which is music supervisor, which is essentially somebody who works in between films and TV shows and the record labels and gets whether it's new artists or stuff from the um, archive and puts them on there. We used to ha- have someone uh, at Endemol, uh, Amelia Hartley, who did it for all our shows, and she chose all the music for Peaky Blinders, for example. So all those incredible Nick Cave songs, there's yeah. a brilliant Richard Hawley, Bob Dylan cover, but every single song you'd have heard has is, 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 is gone through a music supervisor. So yeah, it's a real job. It's a big, it's big business for films and TV because they make money for licensing stuff anyway. And as you say, every now and again, you get something that's uh, an enormous hit. So yes, a potentially interesting question and an actual answer. And I think that actually in, in the era when so many, so much kind of movie, particularly, you know, they're going for things that can be made later in order for them to go viral into TikToks and GIFs and what have you, they particularly are looking for those songs because they want them to be kind of spread natively by people who've seen the film and really liked it. Yeah, but it's a big business and a big industry already. Talking of big business, big industry, shall we go to an advert? Let's do that. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Back that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome back. A uh, question for you, Marina, from Andrew McAvoy. Why was there no follow-up program to the enormously successful Castaway 2000? Apart from Ben Fogel, we never got to find out what happened to the Castaways. Oh, my goodness, Andrew. Th- first of all, thank you for writing in. But I have to say, because it was shit. I mean, Castaway was shit, wasn't it? This was this was a really worthy attempt at a sort of BBC reality show when the BBC, I think, way back in the day were thinking, and they got this island off the coast of Scotland. Was it called Taransay? They got an island off the coast of Scotland and they put some people there and said, wouldn't it be interesting to start a sort of experimental community um, and see how they all get on and we'll follow them over the year. But it's like, oh, God, it's so bloody worthy. I mean, you know, island-based formats are things like Survivor, which I'm Richard, you know all about. Mm, I do. Uh, yes, I do. Um, it's, listen, Which was Andrew, good. Uh, so, absolutely. Uh, Andrew, you didn't expect that, did you? Um, Sorry, Andrew, because yeah. it, it, I, I know what you mean, but I just, I mean, I just, I wasn't interested in it as a social experiment. Um, I think you're right. It didn't do amazing numbers. I mean, Ben Fogel is great. 
we talked about um, Channel 5 on uh, on Tuesday a little bit and about how they really know their audience. And I, I remember when um, Ben Fogel goes to Chernobyl came out and Twitter went, oh, my God, this is a new low. And, of course, it went crazy. Yeah. I mean, so many people watched it because people did want to watch it. People love Ben Fogel, but I don't think they love. Tell you why they like Ben Fogel, and he's the only one you know from Castaway because they cast a young, good-looking person in the show, along with a load of other people that you didn't really, you know. Which, let's face it, was the whole of the rest of the all reality TV was like that from there on in. Yeah, he's probably the only one there who could also have been on Love Island. Yes, if you put younger-looking people in, people would watch. So, in in that sense, yes, I I don't know what ever happened to them, and I don't know what happened to Taron Say. But essentially, instead of making Love Island, they made Island. Yeah. Island-based formats, though. I mean, in the 2000s, you were nothing if you weren't marooned on an island or a soundstage having to remember the lyrics yeah. or in a well, mansion. Well, that was Survivor. Funnily enough, it came about uh, when I was at Planet 24 and Charlie Parsons had just... He'd seen a show where Joe and Alumni had been abandoned on a oh, desert yes, island. Oh, yes, I remember that one. And he said, what what could we do on a desert island? And, and then, you know, you get the format of lots of people coming together and people getting voted off. So, yeah, it all started from Joanna Lumley uh, <laughs> on a desert island. There you go. Okay, we've got one from Andrew Coulson, I think not the uh, former News of the World editor. Might be. I, might be, but... Yeah, we can okay, neither confirm it might nor be. deny. Let's, ha- let's assume it is. I wonder what Andy Coulson's got on his mind. I have this year decided to start applying to be a contestant participant on some TV shows, <laughs> might be I him. think we can assume, after seeing some friends get on shows like Only Connect and The Chase. What are your tips to, for how to apply for TV shows? What are producers looking for? And how can you adjust your application to be exactly that? Come that on, Richard, is this is definitely sneaky. one for you. Um, it's a... Yeah, it's a good question. What are people looking for? Different quizzes are looking for different things, of course. Only Connect, you just go on and be super clever and know stuff. Uh, and if you're socially awkward, doesn't matter at all. And in fact, they're uh, they're delighted to see it. On other shows, you just have to have a thing, really. A lot of times people go on all these shows, they go around the country and they audition people. And one of the things they'll do, they'll essentially ask you a load of questions uh, and you answer them. And a lot of people's mistake is just going, oh, okay, okay, I've got 20 questions. I'll get all 20 questions right uh, in as fast a time as possible um, with no personality. And that is not really what people are looking for. They are, of course, on Mastermind and University Challenge and Only Connect. That's what they're looking for. But on a more of an entertainment quiz like The Chase or, or, or Pointless or something like that, they want someone who's got a bit of something about them now that isn't your super bouncy and good i'm a bit of a character me the thing about <laughs> me is i'm crazy uh don't do that but have a hinterland have interests have hobbies have an interesting job it's quite useful yeah. um where do be, you apply where 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 are they advertised sorry this is so basic but um almost always know. on like on the websites of the bbc for bbc shows okay. or you know after a show you love it it'll have contestant calls when they're when they're looking for, for for contestants which usually a couple of times a year um but yeah just have something about you you know have you know if you are 85 years old for example you are getting on <laughs> just so you know it's going to happen that you're going to be on that show and I mean, you'd have to do something really badly wrong not to get on the show because we already know that that people are going to love that if you've got an interesting job if you're a firefighter you're coming on the show yep. um so it's that really it's it's uh it's go along understand they are looking for you to be someone that people will want to watch on television and it's not like a reality show where you have to be crazy it's just is this something about you that people will engage with and that people will like and don't get all 20 questions right don't get zero questions right would be the other thing and then also pick carefully the show you want to go on because 
if you go on Pointless, you'll have a really, really great day and you'll be on three shows and it's a laugh. If you go on The Chase, you might win £100,000. So think about <laughs> the thing that you want. But by the way, trying to win £100,000 is also terrifying. You will not have a fun day. I mean, you will. You'll be looked after and all that stuff, but it's, it's, it's a tense day. But yeah, go and be yourself. Have something about yourself. It's just a little bit of peacocking somewhere. Just <laughs> something about you that's different to the other people. But don't mistake it for an intelligence test. You know, that's not what people are looking for. Here's a question from AP, a question I'd love to know. Who in the team takes the blame on a TV or radio show where a guest goes completely off on one? I'm thinking of Lawrence Fox, etc., Miriam Margulies swearing, um, that sort of thing. Surely people know what they're getting into when these people are booked. Well, yes, I think they do. You're supposed to control the guest. And if you, if they actually, if you actually swear, then you'll always notice presenters, the person who's actually supposed to be anchoring the thing, will get out in front of it and say... Sorry, we just want to apologise because Ofcom, who regulate broadcasting in this country, uh, that you have to do that or else you get fined for not having not having done it. But actually, Ofcom recently, well, a couple of years ago, re- reduced, released a report saying that over the last five years, how much people care about swearing has completely halved. Like people mm. just don't really care when it happens. That you still have to apologise for it. What they're much more um, hot on nowadays is sort of perceived sexism, perceived racism, things like that. So those are the sort of things people complain about. In terms of like going off on one, I mean, he's right, isn't he, Richard? I mean, people, you sort of, when you're booking those people, you know it's going to happen. Clearly someone like Lawrence Fox, when you're on GB News, they're always hoping something goes hap- that happens because basically no one watches it, or more people are watching GB News than were before, by the way, but what they're hoping is to have a little clipped viral moment that they can send round and then that will go viral and everyone will think oh you know exciting things happen on that channel you can never predict what's going to happen except you can always predict what's going to happen yeah it's exactly right you do you do you know exactly what you're getting you know what you're getting with him it's done completely deliberately you know it's sort of what's become the ruination of a lot of political shows is they are looking for you know a, a sort of spark to go off rather than looking for you know and I listen I get and the it. ruination of our politics to a huge yeah. extent once news coverage became again sorry this is tangential but once news coverage became something which people sort of cast almost like they were casting reality TV like well let's get two people who completely disagree on this subject and then there'll be fireworks and it will cause drama and you know for a 24 hour news channel it, it may have must have seemed more interesting to sort of create pundit TV in that way but I think it has been massively to the detriment of our politics and it implies that everything is on this kind of these these polar oppositions when actually most people are sort of in the middle yeah i think it's it's genuinely embarrassing and it's it's the (laughs) it's it's the last swish of a dinosaur's tail which is a dying industry desperately trying to find any way to fund itself and doing it by by sort of promoting the basis instincts it has and it 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 cheapens all of us i think and have we found something you don't think should be sport and that is the news i do not think the news should be sport i think well i i I think that the news should be led by the sports news of course uh, of course that goes without saying and then foreign affairs uh, and then Westminster but not conducted as a battle royale <laughs> that's not a bad idea oh, actually oh god okay Sophie Rayworth versus uh, yeah um, yeah I, I think that you know you do know what you're getting if you book you know a TV panel show example would be Johnny Vegas so with Johnny Vegas you know you've got a finely honed TV panel show you know if Johnny comes on your fine honedness is for nothing because Johnny will beat Johnny and, you know, will make it funny in his own way. So you sort of have to ride the wave of Johnny Vegas. If you've got Richard Ayoade on, he's going to question everything about the format. He's going to bring that particular um, element uh, to it. But, yeah, in, ter- in terms of um, swearing, it's not an issue on 
recorded shows because you can lop the swearing out. Um, but uh, something yeah. says a time delay, a, a slight five second time delay, and they can take things out. Exactly that, you know, which. I don't know if they do on the football because you hear a lot of swearing in the stands of football or sometimes uh, the managers. I know in radio phone-ins on certain channels they have they have a they have a sort of five second delay and they've got a crash button they can press if somebody swears very extremely. So if you hear a peculiar edit on, let's say, Talksport, I don't know why I choose them. uh, That's because (laughs) somebody has just said something awful about Gary Neville or something like that. But then they have to build up that time, uh, you know, that they because they've taken away their five second bleep. They now need to build that back up, and that might take twenty minutes. So if you ring in fairly shortly afterwards and want to say the same thing about E.G. Gary Neville, then unfortunately it might get heard. Or that used to be the case if you were, if you were the, the swearer. They now have a button called a double dump, which means you can you've got ten seconds essentially. But if you do it for a third time, definitely you can okay. get on air. That's, uh, get three friends together if you've got something you really need to get off your chest and coordinate it and you'll probably get it through. We used to do a show years ago. I can't remember what it's called. Isn't that terrible? But we had a, a comedian called Ross Lee whose only job was to get on air on phone-in shows. Uh, and he got, on, <laughs> he, got, he got on this morning three days in a row uh, just, just saying absolutely ridiculous things but live as well. And by the third one, Maidley is so furious <laughs> that he got done again. So he got all different accents, different things, and then just being absurd. But his job all week was just to get on the television shows. Oh. So yeah, you know, you know when you've got a live wire by and large on your show, and there's certain people you just, you know, you just wouldn't invite on your show. And you also, know. your producer will know beforehand whether they are completely wasted before they're going on things like that. If they've turned up and they're in, shall we say, a state? Yeah, you get reports certainly from the runners about whether how much people, certain people have drunk before they've gone on to a show and stuff like that. And it, it, listen, I mean, what can you do? You, you, you've got to put a show on air. Yeah, I, n- I never really. Sometimes in, in when we were recording pointless in front of an audience, and if it's quite a quiet audience, we'd swear. Uh, just because they loved it, they'd all go, ooh. Um, <laughs> because they know they're not going to see that on the actual... So exactly, they're in, in yeah, behind the curtain. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Um, once Zander said, in front of Mary Berry. Uh, and he, she gave him such a stare. Can we beep out that word, by the way? Because that's not, that's not my brand. No. I'm not, I'm not a swearer, but it's, it's Zander's brand. Oh, my but, goodness. Oh, yeah, but people love the sense that they're... Yeah, yeah. Seeing the bloopers real that no one yeah, else is going to get. I tell you, he didn't love that. Mary Berry. No, no. <laughs> and poor Zander, who is the nicest man in the world and the politest man in the world. I don't really know why he said it. I just saw a little glint of mischief in his eye before he said I can't remember what it was about. But you could tell, as a world brought up man, he realised he's upset Mary it's really Berry. really overstepped the line. he was, yeah, mortified. He was, I, could, I could see him writing a note of apology on his podium as we spoke on headed notepaper. <laughs> One more green rooms from Sean O'Neill. What memorably bizarre behind-the-scenes celebrity behaviour have you witnessed? Oh, I've got one good one, which is uh, on an episode, I think it was the Jonathan Ross show, and we're all in, uh, it's at the BBC, we're sitting in the green room, there's just four writers, uh, and door opens, and the head of the BBC at the time, Alan Yentob, pokes his head around the door, looks around, slightly annoyed, and then goes, um, if you see Jay-Z, tell him Alan's looking for him. <laughs> yeah, that went down well, I can tell you. Um, I think that's all we've got time for. That is all we've got time for. Great questions. And I'm, I'm looking through the questions here, and there's so many we haven't done, but new ones keep coming in. So we're, we're, we're building up. A, if we haven't answered your question, it may well just be on the, the, the list of ones that we love. Vast arsenal of questions from a you. Vast we are building arsenal. Up. Please send more to our vast arsenal. We are in an arms race here. It's the rest is entertainment at gmail.com. Vast arsenal at <laughs> btinternet.com.
<laughs> don't send it to vast arsenal that beat it. I wonder if that exists. Probably not. Don't yeah. send it to that address. Send it to us. Yeah. Thank by, you so much for listening. Thank you so much. And by the way, if you're wondering which word I said that was beeped out, it was. <laughs>